All right. Well, thank you everyone for joining us today. We're here to discuss healthcare and cybersecurity together with Hub Security's very own CRO, David Hofhauser, alongside a number of healthcare cybersecurity experts, including Tony Reyna, Cher Baig, Tony Clark, Martin Konish, Seth Carmody, and Ray Deotti. Um, we'll start our webinar today with a brief introduction from David Hochhauser on today's discussion topic. And then our panelists will each get the chance to briefly introduce themselves. After we'll get into a bit of a deeper discussion on everything related to healthcare cybersecurity, including its ongoing threats and solutions. And as usual, we'll leave 30 minutes at the end of the discussion for a short Q&A. So if you have any questions throughout the discussion, feel free to drop them in the Q&A section below and we will get to them later on. Um, if you can't find the Q&A section, the chat, the chat works fine. Yeah. So now we have an impressive lineup of panelists tonight and I'm excited to have them each introduce themselves to you. Uh, but first we'll begin with a few words from David uh, before we hand off the mic for introductions. Um, welcome, David Hochhauser. Thank you, Sterni. Um, I'd also like to thank everyone for joining us. And hopefully also everybody is enjoying the snow. It seems to be snowing everywhere from New York to Texas to Jerusalem in the last 24 hours. So we have a lot in common there. Um, we have a tremendous panel of experts uh, with a range of security expertise, everything from, you know, from healthcare and vendor organizations. Um, and from a broad perspective, um, the general categories of topics will include, I'll talk about data sharing um, of, hyper, of, of health cyber threat info, as well as the health information itself. Um, IOMT, or the Internet of Medical Things and Cybersecurity, um, some perspectives from outside the US as well. And um, just so you know, there are no hard boundaries around the topics though. Um, so I'm sure we will branch off to other areas as the panelists feel are important as well. Um, so I think it should be very interesting. And back to you, Sterney, to help move us along. Thank you, David. Uh, yeah, we're glad you could be here with us today as well. And I hope everyone's staying warm. And um, we have about two feet here in Germany uh, of snow. So I know I am trying to at least. Uh, but now I'd like uh, just to take a few minutes to do a quick introduction round, starting with Martin. Uh, would you mind giving our listeners a bit of background on yourself and your field of expertise uh, and why you're here with us today? Oh, hi, everybody. Uh, thank you that I can join you here. Uh, I work as a CIO for one of the bigger hospitals in Prague. We've got 1,200 beds in the hospital, 3,500 employees. Uh, my former career was as an enterprise and solution architect in financial and telco sector. And I'm here with you to share the in-field uh, information about how, how we see it in a hospital in a country that is not the one, the furthest in the digitalization. Thank you, Martin. Cher, over to you. Yeah, thanks. A quick mic check. Can you hear me okay? All right, fantastic. So good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everyone. Uh, pleasure to be here with all of you. My name is Cher Baig, and uh, I'm the, I basically lead the global cyber product 
uh, organization at G Healthcare. So for those of you who might not be familiar, uh, G Healthcare, we're a, a global OEM um, and we have one of the largest uh, install bases as well with regards to medical devices. We have one of the largest uh, multi-vendor medical device services businesses globally as well. And uh, essentially what I do is uh, my organization that I lead is responsible for building and taking to market uh, new solutions and offerings for, um, you know, folks like Martin on the call. So, so you know, uh, hospitals and, and CIOs and CISOs in the HDO space. Um, and that's, that's what we lead. And uh, I've been with uh, G Healthcare for, for more years than I would like to stay here. So I don't want to give away my age, but I've been here for a long time. And a um, big part of the commercial medical device cybersecurity industry. So pleasure to be here and happy to have this conversation. All right, thank you, Cher. We're glad you could be here with us today as well. And Tony, over to you, uh, Tony Clark. We have two Tonys here today. Hi there, uh, so uh, Tony Clark's my name. I am CISO for ICON Clinical Research. So we're a clinical research organization that helps bring drugs to market. So we work with most of the pharmaceutical organizations um, and we'll work in all phases of the clinical trial process. So we recruit patients and you know, conduct a, the clinical trials on, on the different sites, analyze the data and, and help you know, conform that to regulatory standards, create the regulatory submissions. We also have central labs to analyze samples uh, globally and uh, we do medical device diagnostics research um, and we're an organization of about 15,000 uh, staff and obviously my role is to, to, to make sure all that happens seamlessly and, uh, and is secure. Uh, so I have a global team that work with uh, to make sure our security program is you know commensurate with the regulatory environment safeguard and protect our customer data and our own infrastructure and systems that uh, process that information. Big responsibility. Thank you. We're glad you could uh, join us. Um, next, we have Seth Carmody. Hey, everybody. Uh, Seth Carmody here. Um, bit, of, bit of background about me. I'm currently at a, a, a security software startup called MedCrypt, but I spent uh, basically the last eight years living and breathing medical device cybersecurity. I was a, a cyber policy architect for a lot of the documents that you may or may not be familiar with that came out of the FDA with respect to cybersecurity. Um, you know, I've seen it all, uh, but on response efforts with uh, medical device manufacturers to healthcare delivery organizations during any number of response activities from WannaCry to NotPetya um, and all the other ones in between. So uh, happy to be here and, and share in that journey and things that I've learned. Seth, we're also happy that you could be here. And we have next um, Anthony Reyna. Hi, I'm Tony. Oh. Hi, I'm Tony Reyna. Um, uh, although I, we have two Tonys on the line, so uh, Tony might refer to me as either G or Anthony, which is totally fine. Um, I'm a physician and data scientist at Intel. And I serve as the chief AI architect for health and life sciences. Uh, my primary role is I lead a team in what's called privacy preserving machine learning. 
Uh, and so our, our typical use cases uh, currently are in the health and life sciences where you're trying to train AI models, um, which are kind of the latest, greatest kind of thing, uh, in a way that protects uh, patient uh, confidentiality. So uh, in accordance with HIPAA or GDPR um, and looking at, at solutions for that, which opens up some security issues as well in its own right. So I'm a blessing and a curse at the same time. So thanks. Great. Uh, I'm glad that you could be here as well. And last but not least, we have Ray Diotta. Yeah, good morning, afternoon, and evening. Thanks for, for having me on today. Uh, I'm the Chief Data Officer for Healthcare and Life Sciences Globally at NetApp. Uh, NetApp is a, a storage provider and in on-premises cloud and, and edge uh, use cases. Uh, and you might be wondering why, why we're here. Um, we provide a fairly important portion of the security stack, uh, especially around healthcare and life sciences when it comes to preserving and maintaining uh, a significant data posture uh, within the, the healthcare and life sciences space. Uh, prior to, to being at NetApp, uh, where I, I focus on strategy around data analytics and AI, uh, I was the chief data officer for a healthcare system here in Denver, Colorado, uh, where we led a transformation around data, the data estate and data consumption, uh, also focused on you know, ensuring privacy, as Tony mentioned, uh, around all the work that we were doing in AI when it comes to our patients, uh, both health information as well as as the the IP created within the organization. All both, you know, both targets of uh, exploitation attacks. And thank you for having me here. So glad that you could be here. Um, well, we have a few topics that we want to touch on, um, as David mentioned earlier. Um, but I'm just going to jump right into it um, talk a bit maybe about uh, data sharing um, of health threat data and just generally health information. And I'll start with you, uh, Jeet, uh, Anthony. Uh, can you describe maybe for our audience what federated learning is as well as how and why it is being used to develop healthcare AI models right now? Absolutely, yeah. So if you haven't heard of Federated, um, you hopefully will hear about it within the next year. It's becoming a really kind of hot topic. Um, AI obviously is here and it's being used and it's productized. It's in scanners. It's in medical equipment. Um, when I first heard Federated, I thought, oh, this is like, what is this, federal government or something like that? But the idea was coined by Google. And what they did is they were looking at their cell phones and basically with the predictive typing. Um, so if I'm typing to my wife, hey, honey, I'm going to the store. Would you like me to pick up a gallon of blank? That is an AI algorithm that's predicting milk. Um, and so it helps you along as you're typing. Uh, and Google realized that it was going to be not very secure or private, let's say private, uh, to actually read my, my messages. So they had to restructure how AI is kind of trained. Um, and usually what, AI ha what happens in AI is the data comes to like a centralized server. Uh, it ends up getting trained at that centralized server. Uh, and then you get the model. And so Google said, you know, let's kind of turn it on its head and say, let's move the model out to the cell phones. Um, and train on the cell phones, and that way the data never actually has to leave the cell phone. It's really just the model that's going going back and forth. Uh, so it's a way of of basically training uh, models, training AI models, training uh, machine learning models, without actually having to move data across. And that makes it very attractive to the healthcare space that uh, patient records can stay uh, in the hospital and never actually have to leave the, the premises. Definitely, and. 
maybe you can just describe briefly the additional security threat vectors that need to be considered by organizations when it comes to federated learning practices. Yeah, absolutely. So, oh, sorry, go ahead. The second part of that question would be maybe some ideas on how to address these concerns. Yeah, absolutely. So, so that's what my primary kind of job is. Uh, our team looks at those security threats, um, and it sounds really great because we say, "Oh, the data is never leaving," you know. Um, but if you know anything about these models, the idea is that uh, the model is actually learning the statistics of the data, and so the model leaves, which means that the data in some form is actually leaving in the form of the model um, itself. Um, and so there, it ends up op opening up attack vectors there where uh, in particular, what we're being asked to do now is I'm sending compute, I'm sending some sort of algorithm to potentially untrusted nodes. I mean, okay, they're hospitals, but I don't, I don't control those hospitals. I don't control those sites. We're asking them to do a compute that we've asked them to do and send back an answer. And so I always say it's it's sort of like, you know, if you were to ask me, hey, Tony, for the next seven days, go out and measure the temperature um, outside and report to me the average temperature. And I come back at the end of the week and give you, oh, it's 105 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, you have no idea whether I'm just in a hot climate or whether it's a particularly hot week. You just have to accept the fact that I gave you a number and that's it. Um, Federate it's the same way. And if if you if you if you don't trust what people are doing, or if you can't trust the answers that are coming back to you, uh, people can do things like trying to spoil your federation, so the model never actually trains. So you've you've gone through all of this effort, and you never get a model that actually does anything. They can also, and these are published attacks showing, you can actually add backdoors into models. So if I want to, if I'm like a, you know tourism person or something like that. Maybe I live in San Diego and I want to make sure that when the model predicts the weather in San Diego, it's predicting like 100 degrees all the time and it's great and it's wonderful and, you know, please come. Um, or it could even do something extremely nefarious, which is there are documented attacks where when people aren't doing the right thing in the Federation, they can actually get the data from other sites through the model through something called a model inversion attack. Um, to solve that, what we've been trying to do is uh, Intel and others have the concept of trusted execution environments. These are, these exist now. Um, they are uh, uh, hardware uh, secured places where you've heard about security at rest and security in transit. This is, this is encryption uh, during use. Uh, so the the actual CPU has instructions that will wall off uh, cryptographically a section of compute and of memory. Um, so you can't dump the memory and it, unless you actually have the key. Um, so I can you can do something on my computer if I allow you, and I can't actually look at inside uh, what we call an enclave to see what's going on. And that's what we think solutions like that will help allow me to run something on your machine uh, and make sure that you can't actually fool with it. You have to do what I'm asking you to do. I have a final question for you, um, mm -hmm. which is regarding equity. I mean, we've mentioned equity before um, yeah. in our webinars, and maybe you can briefly share with us how increased access to data can promote equity in healthcare generally. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I, I really see this as near and dear to my heart that there's there, there's definitely lots of issues with bias in uh, AI models. Um, and one of the inherent issues is that since it's hard to get access to lots of diverse data sets, 
um, we tend to have models that are trained on maybe it's a lot of data, but it's a lot of data from the same population. And so I've always kind of had the, the, the phrase, you know, if, if the model isn't working as well in Moscow as it is in Madrid, as it is in Madras, um, then there's probably something wrong with the model. It needs to be more generalizable. It needs to basically, if it's a like the models that I work with are like brain tumor segmentation. Um, so if I'm trying to identify a brain tumor in an MRI scan, it should work well in all of those cities. Uh, and so Federated actually allows you to get greater access to data in a privacy preserving way. And you can actually check that. You can actually say, I'm gonna take this model and I'm gonna try it in all three cities. And I can actually identify I've got a bias. There's for some reason it's not working well in the city. Why? Why is it not working well in that city? And it's the only way that you can kind of ensure in the wild that you're not really getting that bias. And hopefully by bringing in all of this additional data that you wouldn't normally have access to, um, you can actually reduce bias in, in these sorts of models. Uh, I'm going to shoot a question now over to our other Tony, Tony Clark. Um, Tony, you work in healthcare at ICON. What would you say were some of the biggest challenges that um, the industry faced over the last 12 months? Um, there was COVID, there was a lot more going on, but definitely due to COVID, um, with some kinds of attacks, including ransomware attacks. Uh, but maybe you could just outline for us uh, some of the largest challenges that you saw um, the healthcare industry. Yeah, absolutely. No problem. <clears throat> and yeah, I mean, I think it comes as no surprise, right, that, that you know, the pandemic and COVID-19 played a huge role last year. So, I mean, we work quite closely with HISAC and HISAC members. So you get a good sense of kind of the, the threat landscape that's, that healthcare is uh, facing. So, I mean, last year, it really did follow the pandemic. So like Q1 tended to be particularly kind of you know February March tended to be around phishing and PPE scams and uh, you know as the epicenter of the pandemic kind of changed you'd see you know phishing attacks that were maybe in Italian etc where where you know that that was kind of where the pandemic was hitting hardest and then kind of as you moved into Q2 it, ransomware really really took off you know a lot of hospitals um a lot of big healthcare organizations got got hit with ransomware and then kind of q3 tended to be you know have a bit of more of a focus around organizations and from organizations working on clinical trials and pharmaceutical companies there tended to be a big focus on uh you know criminal threat actors trying to monetize that situation but also other uh entities nation states etc trying to gain access to information about who's working on vaccines and you know what what what's going on from a you know vaccine development perspective and then q4 um again uh you know big focus on uh the vaccines EMA and other organizations getting hit there. So even when vaccine candidates were being submitted, they were still a, a target for, um, 
you know, for, for threat actors and, um, you know, the, the whole cold chain and kind of supply and distribution around COVID-19 vaccines. And then, you know, ransomware is still highly topical in Q4 and even, you know, the start of this year. So, you know, I think those trends are going to continue, maybe a bit more of a focus on kind of distribution of the of vaccines probably spill over a little bit into the physical kind of world as well in terms of trying to monetize that which scams and you know packaging also you know um trying to steal vaccines and uh you know that's the type of stuff that i think is going to be really kind of imminent and topical in terms of healthcare and organizations making sure that they're prepared and able to defend against that um you know, ransomware, I think, is still going to be very topical this year. Definitely been a tough year uh, for healthcare. Um, yeah. yeah, very much in the limelight. <laughs> yeah. And tell me, because I wanted to get your take on this, uh, do you see value in sharing cyber threat information? And if yes, do you have any security or privacy concerns uh, with sharing such, such info? So I think it's hugely valuable. So, you know, there's, there's, there's kind of a, you can take a view that, you know, sharing an IOC, such as an IP address or an email address is low value, right, in the context of a particular attack. But I think certainly the, the tools, techniques and practices, the attribution to the extent it's possible in, in kind of understanding the threat actors that are interested in your organization or your vertical or uh, peers, I think that's, that's hugely important. And I think the more sharing of information, the better. So HISAC is, is a great, um, is a great organization for sharing um, threat intelligence at that level. You know, it's not just through um, kind of manual email distribution lists. There's a whole, you know, uh, automated threat intel platform uh, mechanisms that people can ingest into their, you know, misp instances or, you know, other tip platforms. And I think there's a lot of value in, you know, proactively taking that information and pushing it to your uh, environment, um, particularly if you know that it's, you know, that it's um, that it's that there's a high confidence level around it, right? So you're not going to get false positives, and and that's that's something that you do get from those kind of community-driven threat intelligence. So you know that if a member has shared some information, it's because of something that has happened. It's been validated, and you can have high confidence in it. Um, and in addition to sharing cyber threat info, are you also seeing healthcare companies sharing or wanting to share healthcare information generally with one another? Um, so yes and no. I mean, still very, um, you know, people are very aware of the compliance and the, the, the privacy and, and regulatory issues there, but increasingly more so for reasons that Tony has mentioned they do want to get the benefits and the insight that's that is in that data so um there's you know a lot of healthcare organizations will work to maybe kind of um see what additional insights they can get to wish coupling the data they have with maybe 
um, you know, other healthcare records or other real world evidence and, and other information that, you know, has been mined and maybe packaged um, by other organisations. So I, I think that, yes, um, you know, healthcare organisations will share more data and will work with third parties to kind of uh, supplement the information and data that they have. But there's still, you know, a, a, a regulatory concern around how they do that, and there's still a, a caution there. I'd say. Great, thank you, Tony. Ray, I'm gonna pass the mic over to you for a minute, and maybe you can tell us um, how has the healthcare sector generally been responding uh, to the latest increase in cyber attacks? Maybe you can share with us a bit on that. Yeah. So I think in general. Um, you know, healthcare is, is typically behind and, and under funds, things like security. But I think we're getting better as a general rule in terms of, you know, becoming more aware of all of the threat vectors. I mean, you know, when I was in, in the, you know, in an, an IDN, uh, a hospital setting, we focused on, you know, <laughs> spam and, and phishing attacks, right? It, it was It was very, basic what we were looking at and um and i think as we've evolved over the last three or four years there's become a much better realization of the breadth of attack vectors both inside and outside of healthcare and and a new understanding that the power of the data that is within healthcare is exceptionally valuable to attackers right it's not just what they can do with the data, but it's how they can impact those lives. And, and understanding that and getting to the point where we're now doing a much better job of protecting it uh, is, is really the biggest evolution. But I still think we have quite a long way to go as we start adding in consumer wearables, as we start adding IOMT, as we start doing the things that Tony R talks about in, in machine learning and AI. And as we start doing you know all of this data sharing between organizations, whether it's, you know, pharma and CROs or between CROs, or as we talk about the health information exchange and moving that data between the hospital systems, specifically in the US and then into the exchange for sharing and continuity of care, that opens up an entirely new vector for, you know, exploitation that isn't necessarily in our control, but we need to be exceptionally aware of as we engage in those partnerships. Now, now that we are seeing more insider threats on the rise as well, what is being done to deter them within the healthcare and life sciences sector? Yeah, so insider threats are a really interesting thing and coming out of the defense community, right, we always had a very keen eye on insider threat. And I think we have two variations of insider threat in healthcare. And one is the the accidental insider threat, right? So we have, you know, admins who accidentally are deleting archives or deleting backups or, or accidentally clearing a table. Um, and, and that type of, of mistake actually becomes a threat to the care delivery that we're trying to provide. So being able to look at things, not just from a what's coming in from the outside, but also what's going on inside. Can we identify behaviors that are abnormal? Can we identify and prevent mistakes from arbitrary or accidental insider threat um, is, is truly, you know, necessary. And then there are people who 
in order to do their job are shipping data all around the healthcare system to their peers, to their bosses, outside of the system. And I think that's one area where it's, again, it's not malicious per se, but it is an area that we have to be really investing in securing that information and providing platforms for people to do their work and drive insight without having to insecurely share data uh, between individuals and organizations, because that becomes, you know, again, a really big problem for um, how people are sharing data, how people are sharing shares, um, and how access is granted across the organization. Definitely, that has a lot to do with IAM um, and PAM policies um, that are instituted at a higher level um, within the organization yep. as well. And before I jump to my next question for you, I just want to remind everybody that we have Q&A at the end. Uh, so I see some of you are dropping your questions in the chat, which is great, but uh, you can also drop them in the Q&A. And um, if you have a specific panelist uh, that you'd like it to be directed to, um, feel free to, uh, to write that there as well. Um, so my last question for you, uh, for now at least, Ray, is what do you see as the biggest opportunity uh, for healthcare and life science uh, organizations to transform and innovate in the yeah, so uh, I think it's a fantastic question, but I, I, the way I look at it, it's, it's coming to the, the end state of having an end-to-end -end holistic security posture. You know, everything from looking at, at what's going on at the application in, in, you know, the organizational tech or the OT, um, all the way down into the data layer and protecting archives, snapshots, things like that, that even though we have encryption, being able to avoid those, you know, ransomware threats that are coming in and taking months and years to evolve to credential up and then get into the archives. I think having that holistic strategy and evolving into that strategy from a security perspective that you're protecting everything um, and, and not having gaps in it is the biggest area that we can transform in healthcare and then be ready to to secure and make private all of the things that are coming to us in terms of IOMT and the rest of the the dynamic SaaS community that's going on that we deal with on a day to day basis. Great, thank you, thank you so much, Ray. Um, and I have a question, a final question, uh, just for David. While we're on this topic, um, with respect to machine learning and data sharing, um, what approaches are you seeing? implemented in order to protect data and AI algorithms. Okay, yeah. Um, one, by the way, just to give you an idea of the value and the risk involved, um, just to start off, there was a, a 60 minute segment a couple of weeks ago, literally on the value of sharing um, DNA information in order to do AI. But half the segment was also on the effort that China is going through to steal all of our DNA information. So it kind of really puts back to back both the value and the risk. And I think that's what we're dealing with um, from that perspective. And I think this uh, protection of the privacy of, you know, of very sensitive medical data and applications and even the AI algorithms we talked about and the models, it moves into an area that we call confidential computing where in addition to all of the traditional security approaches, um, the data and apps are actually have to be protected 
while executing as well, which is something you know that Tony G was was uh, implying and alluded to. So he discussed federated machine learning, which by itself um, technically doesn't fall into confidential computing, but I think is one really very innovative approach that goes a long way to start accomplishing this. Um, there's still a need to protect the algorithms, the models, um, and there are ways to do that. Um, you know, some of the ways, um, and they all have their pros and cons. Um, one of them deals with something called homomorphic encryption, um, where the data is actually encrypted while being processed. So from what I've seen, it's kind of, that piece is still somewhat experimental and, and research just because of performance limitations, um, which helps, which defeats some of the data sharing. So that's a little bit, I think, further out there. Um, more closer to home is maybe trusted computing approaches. You know, we are actually hardening the hardware um, and computer operating environment so that you can't get access to the information while it's executing. Um, and Intel XGS is probably the most common one um, and something that Tony G mentioned as well and the leading example. And that's actually one way of protecting things like federated machine learning. Um, and of course, um, I have to mention Hub Securities. Um, confidential computing platform, um, which can actually be used to protect both federated and non-federated uh, collaborative uh, data sharing and machine learning, um, even as well as general computing. And without getting into details, one key advantage is it actually maintains the extreme performance that you need uh, while also providing the extreme privacy and security at the same time. So they all, they all have, again, like I said, pros and cons um, at various things, but those are some of the some of the approaches that I'm seeing out there, you know, um, including our own, obviously, um, to do to protect it so we can get the value and try to mitigate and reduce the risk at the same time. Great. Thank you, David. Um, Cher, over to you now. Uh, Maybe you can share a bit with us, um, just based on your background at GE Healthcare and beyond, what are you hearing in the marketplace regarding the risks and threats for medical device cybersecurity? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think uh, some of the panelists touched on some key points there, so absolutely agreed with everything that was shared. And I'm sure folks who are joining too, a lot of them are aware that, um, you know, unfortunately, healthcare is an industry that's really under attack, right? I mean, it's it's kind of where the finance industry was a decade ago um, with more and more medical and clinical devices becoming network devices, smart devices, that risk has exponentially increased over time. Um, from our vantage point and from mine, you know, it's, it's interesting because if you talk to a customer in South Africa, Malaysia, Singapore, UK, Germany, US, Canada, the, the situation on the clinical devices on the IOMT is the same, which is we have a good idea in some cases of how to manage the risk to some extent on the IT side, but we're struggling to determine what we need to do on the OT side. So the IOT and the IOMT uh, space, because you cannot apply IT philosophy to a clinical device. And in G Healthcare, we're a medical device manufacturer, so we very much know that you cannot do certain things that you can do on IT assets to clinical devices. To give you some perspective, I think um, last year, over 86% of the 
of uh, hospitals that were part of this stu one study that was conducted said that they experienced some form of a security breach. On the clinical side of the house, your average cost of a data breach was about three and a half million in 2018. It's now almost seven and a half million at the end of 2020. So that's giving you an idea that it's not getting better. It's, it's, it's almost like it's not a matter of if, it's, it's more of a matter of when. So a lot of our customers that we're talking to globally, healthcare delivery organizations, um, that's becoming a very increased area of concern is how do you manage medical device cybersecurity and IoT cybersecurity? Because in some cases, clinical engineering owns that space. But if you talk cybersecurity, they say it's an IT issue. You go talk to IT and sometimes and they feel that, well, clinical device falls under maybe a separate space. So now these teams are coming together, IT and, and, and clinical engineering, they're coming together, which is a good thing, but bad actors are really taking advantage of this space. So I think this is an area which is very critical because of course it has direct impact to patient security and patient safety, um, medical records, and then there's such a difference between legacy medical devices, uh, different types of medical devices, different modalities from your PACs to your VNA, to your software, to your um, you know, larger industrial products like your MRs. So this is a very, very critical space. And I think um, now a lot of CIOs and, and CISOs in the HDO space are looking at medical device cybersecurity very carefully because it's just becoming such an important area for them. Definitely. And beyond a simple increased collaboration, uh, what are some other best practices that you would recommend around medical device cybersecurity that maybe you could share with us today? Yeah, sure. So just at a very high level, uh, a couple of things to keep in mind is there is no magic easy button out there, okay, that you press a button and you automate everything and you're good to go. Medical devices don't work that way. So you really need to take a very holistic approach. I think somebody mentioned that earlier and they're spot on. You have to take a very holistic approach in dealing with IoT and IOMT. And you have to take into account people, process, and technology. This is not a play which you can make just with a tool. It's not a play that you can make manually just by putting a lot of people into it. The days of conducting physical inventory and thinking that that's what's gonna you know, give us the, the profile information of devices and then we'll be able to, it's all reactive. And the, the name of the game with medical devices is in, in this space is you have to be as proactive as possible. Um, so one, I would say definitely take a, a holistic approach. Do not rely only on a tool or only on one channel of strategy. You need to have people, process, and technology. And then when I mention holistic, we're we are G Healthcare, but the solutions we're putting out, for example, a, a service called Sky, it's a multi-vendor service. So you cannot just look at 
G has to look at the G product, Siemens has to look at the Siemens product, so forth and so on. You have to have a very um, holistic approach in looking at all devices because that's where you need to focus on to improve the risk posture. So uh, at a very high level, I would say those are some of the key things to keep in mind and making a, a, a business case for your board, for your executive leadership, to truly educate them and, and make them understand the need for investment around clinical device cybersecurity is also very critical. So I think all of those things go hand in hand to really help improve the risk posture at the end of the day. I think those are all uh, great tips. Uh, so thank you. Thank you, Cher. Um, a final question for you. What are some sure. common mistakes that health delivery organizations make when considering cybersecurity, especially when it comes to IOMT? Yeah. Um, so, so look, again, I don't mean to throw anyone under the bus or, or put any, anyone down, not at all. But some common mistakes we have seen have been, um, there are a lot of really good tools and technologies out in the market that have been really uh, gaining some steam, I would say over the last three years or so. And one of the common mistakes I've seen is that, um, you know, customers sometimes, HDOs feel that, hey, we got this tool, it has some really good AI capability, it can maybe understand some dynamics of the, uh, of the medical device and its behavior. And so if we implement this, um, we are good to go. Um, that's a very common mistake because that's definitely a part of the solution, but that's not the, the entire solution. The other thing is, the other mistake we have seen is taking IT philosophy and applying it to uh, clinical engineering. So if you have um, someone who's very used to dealing with IT cybersecurity issues, and then you're putting a recommendation for a you know, uh, some sort of a, a clinical device and sending that recommendation to a biomed engineer or clinical engineer and then saying, hey, go apply this philosophy. That, that's, a, that's a major mistake as well in some cases. Not, not everybody. Uh, I'm sure there are many very um, mature organizations who do this very effectively, but you have to be able to understand the nuances of a medical device. And then in many cases, um, you know, we see mistakes made around uh, legacy devices that have maybe out of date operating systems, there's no patch available. When you're coming up with a compensating control for that kind of an IOMT device, you really need to make sure um, you, you have the knowledge and the skill set around that variety of devices to do it. So not applying IT philosophy, um, you know, to to clinical devices as a as a blanket solution, and uh, maybe not expecting a tool to solve your uh, complete and entire issue. I think are some of the common mistakes that we we've uh, noticed with with um, uh, in the market. Definitely, I have to agree. Uh, I think. Uh, many many organizations are starting to understand that there's no one quick fix uh, for any of these issues and many of them will just require a lot of collaboration. Um, I want to hand over my next question to Seth. Uh, thank you so much, Cher. Um, Seth, what are some of the major regulations affecting the security of IOMT at the moment and 
what would you say the biggest challenges organizations um, are facing to meet those regulations? Yeah, it's, a, it's an excellent question. And I think to answer, I'm gonna step back a, a few steps and, and sort of set the stage of uh, why security is hard uh, in healthcare. And indeed it is very hard um, for all stakeholders in the supply chain. And I, I do very much look at healthcare cybersecurity as a supply chain issue. Um, you've got tech uh, supplying components and pieces and parts to medical device manufacturers, this is an example. Um, those medical device manufacturers are then selling into hospitals, HDOs. Those HDOs are then providing, you know, facility for uh, patients and physicians to, you know, treat and cure and extend life and, and do things like pandemic response. Um, and, and all of that chain uh, depends on a supply of technology, right? And, and all that technology is actually built with that healthcare fo focus and feature set in mind. And security is a necessary, but uh, is, a, is a necessary part of that. However, the entire chain is optimized to deliver healthcare, right? So that's why you see why it's difficult for healthcare to, to do security because healthcare does healthcare. That's what they're optimized for. So if you look at the economics of that entire supply chain, you'll find uh, what, what keeps us from uh, a steady state of cybersecurity or, or in a constant state of you know, trying to figure things out. I like to think about security in the term of debt, right? That, that our supply chain is passing security debt onto uh, the deliverers of healthcare. That includes hospitals, physicians, and patients. It's kind of like pollution, though. It's, a, it's an externality. It's a negative externality. It's, it's not an admonishment. It's just because we're focused on healthcare, we get the security debt out of the equation. Um, and in, from, a, from a security perspective, it means that we have implicit trust, right? When I send a command or data, maybe in the form of command to a medical device and telling it to deliver insulin or deliver therapy, whether it's keeping your heart alive or delivering some analgesic through an infusion pump, that infusion pump or whatever device on the other end says, all right, I'll, I will do it. There's no authentication to that, to that scheme because healthcare does healthcare. It's, it's, you don't want to get have security hang up uh, the delivery of healthcare. It's so critical. Yet paradoxically, yeah, yeah, yet paradoxically and, and the panelists have already pointed out, they're dealing with very real threats to the healthcare delivery, right? Whether it's during pandemic or this sort of routine ransomware. Um, so they manifest with the people that are delivering healthcare. Therefore, we focus our energy on where it's delivered, right? So 10 to $20 billion a year is spent largely by the delivery organizations on products, services, and fines, right? And, and the data show that that's not working, right? That we're not actually, and, and uh, Cher uh, actually pointed this out, the data showed that we're actually getting worse, right? I think Ray actually even mentioned that. Um, that so, so, what's the, so what's the solution? Are we supposed to spend more money, right? I, I don't think we can get that. We're sort of chronically underfunded anyway because we're delivering healthcare. So what's the answer, right? So that, that's the kind of thing I've been thinking about. Uh, I have some ideas, but uh, I'm cert certain you have some additional questions as well. Yes, definitely. And I, I just wanted to add to that, that I see a lot of nodding heads. Um, and tell me, do you think that we have enough security vendors that are focused on reducing security risk uh, by building trustworthy technology or rather 
building technology to simply manage yeah. uh, security debt. Yeah, it's it's part of this uh, shift shift left or supply chain shift left philosophy that I've pr been trying to extol, right? Is that I feel like we're focused on solutions for the delivery organizations, and certainly we need those, right? For as a defense and depth strategy. But if we back up the supply chain, we go to the medical device manufacturer and say, do medical device manufacturers have enough components to pull when they're building their clinical features? Can they just pull down enough components that are secure by design or easily configurable for security that makes it easy for everybody, right? And my answer is no, but it's part of the reason why I think hub security is here, right? It's the reason why MedCrypt is doing its thing is because that is that feels like the way to do it, right? So to reduce the burden on the people that are focusing on the clinical delivery, like the clinical aspects, by making security a whole lot easier, because it is absolutely one of the most difficult disciplines that I've ever encountered. And I'm, a, I'm an organic chemist by training. I'm, I'm just like, you know, uh, absorbing as much security as I can. And people think organic chemistry is a hard discipline. Security, mm, no way. Uh, security wins by, by a long shot. So making that easier for everybody when they're focused on healthcare uh, is absolutely the key. So we need more vendors in the space to focus on building secure technology from the ground up that then healthcare can absorb, eliminate debt or reduce security debt um, by, uh, by a lot, actually. Thank you. And tell me, do you think that we have the right uh, active economic incentives in place to get to a steady state? Yeah, I, I, I think that um, we're, not, we're not fully there. So um, I, I am seeing some active market incentives right now um, because it's a negative externality that that the entire healthcare ecosystem isn't necessarily incentivized to build things securely. Again, that's not pejorative. That's just because you're focused on healthcare. Um, the FDA and other regulators play a crucial role, and this sort of gets to the original opening question, right? The FDA and my time at the FDA was spent on building policies and, and sort of you know coaching people up that this is important. And if the regulator is a perfect place to put negative externalities and, and focus on that and create sort of artificial market incentives because we know it's important. Um, so that, I, so that, that's great, right? And then I, you think you see on the other side, you know, hospitals are also saying, hey, we want security. They don't necessarily need, you know, from my experience from folks, they, it, it's hard, it's hard to get it. It's like, how do you, what kind of security do you want for the 6,000 product types that you have in your four walls? It's very difficult to, and, and Cheryl was saying this, you know, uh, that, it's very difficult to say exactly what you need for that that heterogeneity in, in healthcare delivery. Um, so, saying anything like like getting procurement together for a healthcare delivery organization and saying we're not going to buy anything unless it's secure. Well, first of all, what does security actually mean? Second of all, is you need that technology to deliver healthcare. So when push comes to shove, you're going to buy that device. So when it comes to active economics incentives. I can't, I, I've grown not to rely on HDOs to, to let them do healthcare for sure, um, to focus on folks like the FDA and other regulators, but also Congress has a, a role to play. And you, you, I don't know if people are familiar with it, but in 20, end of 2020, uh, I think it was a, originally a House bill, uh, is the uh, IoT Improvement Act of 2020. It said, you know, if you're, if you're a, a IoT manufacturer and you're selling into the federal government, the NIST and other players, in the space are going to define a security baseline that you have to meet 
before you sell into the federal government, which I think is a great way to start. Now that baseline is to be determined um, and needs a, is gonna need a lot of work. Uh, but I think that's the correct way of supply chain shift left. You gotta shift those market incentives up and make them more broad. Definitely, and uh, there's always room for improvement. Um, Martin, I want to bring in your perspective uh, as a Euro European perspective from outside the US. Um, we're talking about security right now, but is security a discussed issue in healthcare and government uh, management in the Czech Republic? And is data sharing um, for cybersecurity and non-cyber health information being actively discussed? Yeah, uh, I, I will get to point by point. First, in the last year, we've got several big attacks on the hospitals and uh, successful attacks, that's uh, that's what I mean. So we've got like five biggest Czech hospitals which were out of order for weeks or even months. Uh, we've got a big attack on whole Czech healthcare system in the April of the last year. Uh, even US government recognized this and asked the uh, other government players not to do that, not to not to attack healthcare system in such hard condition as uh, COVID uh, is. So it has become a discussed issue uh, for the last year at least. It helped a lot for us in the hospitals to that this happened because when there's no hose burning there will be no need for firefighters. Uh, so now we've got several hospitals burning. And so it's much easier, for example, for me in my hospital to enact some security measures that were pretty hard before. And so that's the first part, data sharing. The second, uh, we try, we try, but uh, our first thing we need to do is uh, to stay operational. That's my biggest concern as a CIO in the hospital. So when G. Anthony was talking about uh, federated machine learning, that's pretty nice. But if I use AI, then I will use it just outside of my internal network, just because I don't want to open my internal network to any attack. So that's that's how I have to deal with with things like that. Thank you, Martin. And what measures um, are you taking to mitigate the major risks in these kinds of situations? Well, that's uh, that's the basic idea that I have to divide my concerns for those that makes my hospital operational. So the inner systems, which I need for my doctors and for my other healthcare workers to work that's on my internal network and everything that i want to put public like orders and reservations and even some patient information or even usage of services like ai for we've got a project where you do ai for mammography uh, and stuff like that uh, then I want to use this outside of this inner perimeter and even outside of my hospital because I've got so low resources that I'm not even able to do things like DMZ and stuff like that. So 
I have to have my super secure network with medical devices and stuff like that. And this network can't be open outside because I don't have resources to secure it. So everything else, which is basically not critical because if my ordering system or reservation system falls, well, hospital still works. Uh, maybe less people are coming in, but still we're operational. And so I put all these stuff in the cloud, which I also as an architect think it's, uh, it's the future of how to build a lot of services with all those serverless stuff and uh, uh, and ways how to do things in cloud. So I that's the basic measure I can do. I have to be super, uh, super careful of how to how to do things. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and from what I'm hearing, it sounds like Czech hospitals don't have enough resources uh, for the cybersecurity posture. What, what do you think would help? Um, well, I don't know how's the situation in the United States, but in Czech Republic, we have a public healthcare system. That's the main difference from the from the U.S. And as such, our hospitals are mainly run and managed by doctors. And the situation here is the doctors don't know much about cybersecurity. Well, they don't know much about IT. They are experts in their field, which is pretty far away from IT. And usually they are from generation which has to learn how to use computers and even maybe have some problems with it. So the biggest issue with resources is how to convince these people, our stakeholders, that, well, this is really an issue. And that's why I said that last year pretty much helped because they've seen it's an issue when the neighboring hospital stops working for seven weeks as it happened to us. So yeah, where the resources are very few because all the system is in, is in very harsh condition now with COVID and stuff like that. And the stakeholders don't see IT as the thing that they want to invest in. In our hospital, buying a new RTG or CT or anything is much more important than to do anything about cyber or even about IT. Thank you, Martin. Um, I want to, to get into Q&A in, in a second because we have some really interesting questions coming in. Um, but I have a final question uh, here in our discussion uh, for David, uh, David Hochhauser. Um, tell me, are you seeing major differences between uh, US and European healthcare uh, with respect to security? Um, so I'm gonna, and I'll divert for one quick side comment to the question. Um, I don't recall the television show, but there was a television series a few years ago that had major scenes in it from um, the vice president of the US was actually being blackmailed and was eventually killed by breaking in through his pacemaker monitoring system and killing him. So the only reason I mentioned that is a lot of several people mentioned the issue about getting awareness and getting funding. And just as one potential way is maybe I'll find the series, maybe let them sit down and see this television show and they'll start to realize 
a little bit more of the uh, risk involved may help. Um, that actually covers both. But as far as differences in um, European and, and US healthcare, um, there is huge things that are, that are obviously in, in common across both. And, and the sharing of data, I think, would be you know, enormous. Um, two areas that start that there are some additional areas that come apart is um, some, there are, slight there are differences in the data privacy laws. Obviously, Europe has GDPR and some very strict regulations. There's HIPAA over here. Um, so they're both strong, but there are a little bit differences in some of those things. And I think probably the major difference is some of the things is the public versus private healthcare system. Um, some of the things I start to see is some additional areas around doing things with automation and AI and automation and cost reductions, um, sharing of, of information might be more critical um, in the US just because cost reduction is such a major area of this. And so I think some of those specific cases, as you get into some details, some specific use cases may start varying a little bit as well. Um, that said, I do want to be a little bit cautious on that because it's kind of somewhat my opinion and I'm just haven't seen all of that in detail yet, but I suspect that, and that's kind of some of the things that I'm, uh, you know, starting to be alert for a little bit more around those areas. Yeah, and we have a, an attendee uh, that's sharing that um, this example of uh, that you gave of the pacemaker was uh, Dick Cheney who was on 60 Minutes, um, and uh, and spoke briefly about that. Yeah, so thank you, Chip. Okay, thanks. <laughs> um, okay. That saved me some time. Well, I'd like. <laughs> uh, quick Google search. So I'd like to jump into to Q and A, and we have a lot of really great questions, and uh, some for specific uh, panelists, and some are just open ended. So um, I'm going to shoot them, and if any of you would like to answer them, uh, feel free to jump in, and uh, feel free to respond to one another as well. Um, I guess I'll just start off with a question for Cher. Um, one of our attendees would like to know, how is GE Healthcare planning to manage cybersecurity of medical devices um, that are already in the market um, and comply with post-market cybersecurity guidelines by the FDA? Yeah, great question. Um, we absolutely, of course, uh, abide by all regulations, whether it's the FDA or, or other regional uh, requirements as well from GDPR to to other areas like even some some call out in the Middle East as well but really what we do is we work on three key areas um, uh, from a cybersecurity perspective one is uh, secure design uh, one is secure through the life cycle and the third is by providing managed medical device cybersecurity services so we definitely uh, comply with all FDA regulations with regards to devices that are in the marketplace, with regards to any kind of patch application, patch applicability. Um, of course, there's different uh, SLAs with regards to the timelines of, you know, which is a critical patch, how quickly that needs to be applied into the field. But um, I'll, I'll see if I can share the link for our managed cybersecurity because for many of the devices that are several, several years old and uh, there is no patch application from Microsoft or, or, you know, whatever have you, those are the kind of devices where we come back and really help the customer with through a managed cybersecurity service. 
Great, thank you, Cher. No. Um, I have a question here for you, Seth. Uh, Seth, what are medical device centers doing to the embedded security in new devices? Um, in the industry, we are so used to blaming the manufacturers for security issues and the difficulty uh, to reduce the risk around them. Yeah, great question. I'll, I'll start with the last point first. That and, and indeed, right, that the manufacturers have a job to do to increase the security posture of any any product that they're producing. There's also an expectation on the delivery side that there's got to be some additional defense in depth measures, perimeter like additional perimeter security, network security type techniques. So it's it's definitely a partnership. My time at the FDA and uh, in, in focus on medical device manufacturers and indeed. You know, what we're trying to do at MedCrypt is focus on how do you, one, establish roots of trust or trustworthy devices, right? How do you get features onto a device uh, that make it uh, secure by design? Um, and in some cases, that's super challenging. So in the embedded space, obviously have constraints over compute power, memory, and things like that, especially on fielded devices that have already been architected and not necessarily provided for additional uh, sort of uh, resources. Um, so I think the ways that manufacturers are going about fixing that, you know, I'm sure Cher could uh, kick in here as well, right, is that you have to develop, I, I talked about the mentality of healthcare, right, that there's a shift going on right now in that a lot of medical device manufacturers are getting their feet under them to understand and develop devices, whether they're embedded or not, under a secure development life cycle, right, that instead of focusing entirely on uh, on safety or the clinical feature, the security has to be ingrained, you know, in, embedded to, I guess, to, to a pun, I don't know if that was a pun or not, very bad pun, in, in, embedded into the DNA of the company where safety and effectiveness had been uh, previously and quality. So I think, you know, how are they doing that? You know, I think the way to build secure devices is known, right? Like the, the tools are out there, the techniques, secure coding, I think I saw mentioned in the, the chat, right? It can be done. Apply, uh, Sherry even mentioned, you know, how do you modify, say, an IT, typical IT solution, like PKI is a great example, right? PKI, traditional IT, it's, it's you know, connected in terms of key management and things like that. Well, who's thinking about how you do PKI for things that are maybe semi-connected or maybe they're not connected? So how do you establish roots of trust in a non-connected environment? Right? Those are the types of things that manufacturers have to deal with um, uh, on a daily basis to do that securely. So not only are they dealing with organizationally getting their feet under them, but also the technological challenges while solutions exist, sort of you know, modifying them to, for applicability towards their uh, clinical domain. Yeah, if I could just add one comment to just what Seth said, and I agree with him 100%. You know, just, just on look, I mean, you know, at this point, looking at what's happening in the industry, you have to make those investments if you're a OEM or a medical device manufacturer in the secure design framework, right? So in G Healthcare, at G Healthcare, we're, we have over the last several years been investing a lot from an engineering standpoint, because I think a comment that Seth made was, was, was right on the money that how we used to engineer, you know, a paternal infant care, you know, product or an MR or a patient monitoring system 15 years ago 
is completely different than how we do it now because in GE we've been investing at the engineering level to make sure that through the life cycle of product engineering, you have security, as he mentioned, embedded into that process. Because if you don't do that in this day and age, um, I think there's there's a whole lot of risk you're putting your customers to uh, through if you're putting out devices that way. So the question that even came earlier, I think on the G front was about devices in the marketplace. But just to piggyback off of Seth's comment, new devices, it's a must. It's it's not, it's, it, this is not even a, you can't compromise from cost, margin, none of that. It is a must play to have secure development life cycle built into the product engineering life cycle when you're building new devices. And that's something that we take very seriously at G Healthcare. Great. Thank you, Cher, for jumping in. Um, sure. i got a question for, for Martin. Uh, any thoughts on a zero trust model for identities and would that help reduce the need for a fully trusted internal network? Oh, well, uh, sorry, what, what was the second part? Uh, if there were, you had any thoughts on a zero trust model for identities and if that would help reduce the need for a fully trusted internal network? Well, uh, we don't have fully trusted internal network. Of course, we have segmentation and we've got uh, other stuff, but we know it's not enough. <laughs> we know that we've got, as other mentioned, the medical devices, as is mentioned in the chat, it's a whole different issue. We've got out-of-date operating systems uh, using these medical devices. And uh, we know that uh, this network is vulnerable. It's very much vulnerable. Though we have segmentation and stuff like that, and we won't lose it all, it's still vulnerable. So I, I don't think it's possible for us in the near future to have the resources to secure it and be able to connect it. And it doesn't mean you can't connect from the internet network out. So we're, we're still vulnerable. It's not like we have a security agency with totally uh, disconnected internal network and stuff like that, uh, but we just don't expose any, uh, any ports out. We don't expose anything out. Any connection has to be made from the hospital to the outside world and not the other way. Great. Thank you, Martin. I have a question for, for all of you, um, so feel free to jump in. But one of our attendees is asking, who should own medical data and why? Um, and I think that's a really great question. And maybe, David, do you want to start? Uh, yeah, sure. And I'm actually very interested to hear everybody else's opinion. Um, Definitely. On, on that question. So, you know, I mean, I know there are initiatives both from one, the, the individual has to, to me, in my opinion, at least at a minimum, um, approve the use of it, who actually owns it. And I think in one sense should actually own it. And there are, you know, efforts to say, well, you hold on to your own medical record and you share it with somebody else. Um, there are others that are more essential. There's the hospital that you go to own some of the data. Um, and I, I don't have a definitive approach. I just that the consumer, I think, needs to at least approve it 
but the data is so complex and so voluminous when you're going between one place to the next, um, I think the healthcare organization has to at least take responsibility of owning the responsibility of protecting it and transferring and making sure that permission is there to get to the next place. Um, if you ever go through that effort of having to transfer medical history from one place to the next, you can see it's, it's not an easy task. So um, my opinion is probably a combination of approval, but I think the complexity and the magnitude has to be the responsibility of the healthcare. Um, but I yeah. certainly would love to hear from other people on here. Yeah, I'd love to hear I think yeah, go ahead, Ray. I think, David, you're spot on, right? At the end of the day, the patient, the consumer needs to own the data. Whether or not they're the steward and shepherd of their data is a whole other story. And I think we need to look at the, def the delineation between ownership and stewardship. And the, the HDOs need to be the stewards of that data. And I, as a customer or consumer, should have the authority to consent my data to do certain things, right? Whether that's research, whether that's donation, whether that is um, applicability to population health. And there, you know, there's a lot of discussion going on around how, about how to monetize that to help people pay for medicine in, in the United States where there is such a, a huge cost gap. But I think at the end of the day, I also should be able to at the stroke of a button, be able to extract my information from the stewarding organization and take it in a single common format to another organization. And that type of data democracy is something we all should be pushing for. But with it comes to, I think, everybody's points on this panel, a tremendous amount of privacy and security issues and stakes that come at hand. But I think we need to move past the day of the healthcare organization or Epic or Cerner or any of the EHRs or any of the CROs owning our data, monetizing our data and, and using that data in a way that we may not have consented to or understand consent to. And I think as a corollary, there was another question asked about, you know, the, um, the education. And, and I think that literacy piece is also a, a uh, a role of the stewardship organization, right? The steward needs to help educate and make literate the consumer about what they have and what they don't have. And I think that is something that we as professionals and we as consumers should really be vocal about having in this entire environment. Well, I was just going to make a point about it. You know, it's kind of a, it's a, it's a difficult question to answer, right? In one sense, because what is dead data, right? Like so, so you know, if you pseudo anonymized data, if you've you know anonymized data, and you can use that for some good, um, you know, does ownership ownership is a less interesting question, right? It becomes more about what are you doing or who's using the data and what are you trying to achieve. And I think that's a, an important part of it as well. I just wanted to remark on what I, I agree with Ray's kind of differentiation between the the shepherd and the and the and the owner, and I completely agree. Uh, it but it reminds me of the one kind of issue um, 
So the the Department of Defense had an issue with their uh, their two different healthcare uh, EHRs, um, one for the VA system and one for the the actual active duty Department of Defense. And so when a service member would retire uh, and have to basically transfer their medical records from the active duty Department of Defense system health health. Uh, records into the VA. It was not a seamless transition. Um, they ended up, I think, I, I don't know where it stands now, but I know this was during the, the the Bush administration, and it was basically from the top down. The 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 uh, Gates said, you know, this will happen. You you will reconcile these two systems, so it's easy for a service member to move over. I think they spent several years. Um, and several million dollars trying to do it, and they threw up their hands and said, we don't think this can be done. Um, it's not an easy process, uh, and that should be an easy process to do, to move from from kind of, if, if you're going to shepherd your own data from one system to the other. But I think, Tony, to, to that point, though, there there is a, a lack of standardization that goes from That's EHR right. to EHR, system to system, organization to organization. And without some sort of standardized governance, and in the mm -hmm. states, a, a, a national patient index or ID—what a concept that would be! You know, the, the patient matching issues and all of these other things. I think being able to do that is where we need to start in order to be able to share data, be interoperable, be portable yeah. Uh, yeah. throughout the network, regardless of who we're seeing, is something that we've got to focus on. But to your point the moment of inertia of doing that is enormous, right? Oh, absolutely. We have yeah. to expend so much energy and so much effort to do it, and there's no incentivization to do it yet. Yeah. Martin, did you want to jump in here? No, yeah, I just wanted to say that here in Europe, we've got GDPR, and this whole ownership and stewardship of data question is pretty much solved for us. So maybe it's, it's a good way how to look at it for you other guys in the US. The only thing I, I mean, one other point to add is I was speaking to somebody from um, the Association of Artificial Intelligence for Healthcare, an organization. And they said, you know, there are a lot of privacy laws dealing obviously with data, but in some cases, um, do we need to loosen them in some cases, for example, for, for medical research where there's huge value, we need to maybe protect the identity, but maybe we need to be able to share the data more than some of the privacy laws are enabling. And that, that's actually a tough balance. And they actually have a group that's focused on both technically how to do it and on policy on dealing with some of the value. Um, and then somebody else even here I saw wrote on, well, what if you financially start to incent people? Then you start getting into discrepancies. Wait, are the poor people going to share their data and the richer people not? You know, mm -hmm. if you look at age differences, I generally, and I like to generalize, but younger people tend not to think about privacy as much as when you get older. Um, if for those who have kids, you know, you see they'll share anything online, you know. Um, so there might need to be some more discussion on some of the privacy related issues around it because there is some value in certain things and there are some issues that may come up around being able to just give, say you have permission and control. Definitely. And I, I want to jump on to, to our next question because I think this is a big, pretty big topic in itself. Um, we got a question here and I'm going to 
again, shoot this to, to anybody, so feel free to answer. Um, how are you handling the, the breach that was verified by the NSA on 60 Minutes uh, last Sunday that verified over 18,000 companies around the world were infiltrated? Um, FireEye was the company that caught the breach. Of course, I think the um, attendee is referring to the SolarWinds attack. Um, and they're asking, how are you tracking the breach at your own companies internally? I'm happy to go first. Um, so, you, you know, I think I mentioned earlier on, we're part of HISAC, so we get a sense of, you know, what, what the whole kind of all the members from a healthcare perspective are, are trying to do. So, you know, it's, I think it's fair to say that it's reasonably sophisticated or, or highly sophisticated attack, you know, that even some of the main players like the, 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 the attendee mentioned, you know, FireEye, Microsoft and others have been impacted. You know, it's taken a, a bit of effort to untangle the attack itself and how it was conducted. So, I mean, beyond kind of, you know, the initial incident response stuff that you would do, you know, if you're if you were a SolarWinds customer, it's more kind of a wait and see and, you know, try and understand, you know, what the threat actor has been after what other victims have, you know, uh, materialized. But I think, you know, there's there's probably more to go in this story and if not a movie out of this. I definitely think it's a wake up call uh, for many, many organizations. Mm. Someone else want? Yeah, uh, this, this is Seth. So, you know, we're a, we're a company that makes software. So obviously we're looking into this, right? Because part of that attack, I don't know if it was directly related or not, was that uh, there was, you know, uh, I think SolarWinds build system got infiltrated, right? Well, who doesn't use a build system? And by the way, who's, who is building their own build system? I'm pretty sure that if you make software, you probably use some commercial variety of build system, right? So in this is what I'm getting at in terms of supply chain attacks, right? If you think about the whole thing, like there's people making software everywhere in healthcare, right? And, and they're going to be using a build system of some flavor, right? So if, if you aren't thinking about if, if that, build system company, the people that are building that piece of software for the build system aren't thinking about security, right? Then you, we, we absorb that technical and security debt, right? So we have to shift left, right? Where it's not just healthcare that has laws on the books for security. It's got to be the component manufacturers and tech that are also on the books and responsible for, you know, looking at that from a security point of view. Yeah, and I think the, the other thing I was going to just briefly add was it's also, you know, I mean, SolarWinds clearly is monitoring software, but think of all the other software that enterprises use that might touch large amounts of systems from, you know, ITSM, discovery, vulnerability management, backups, you know, the auto, um, RPA or anything else that might have credential stores like they're, they're as Seth mentioned, you know, high candidates for this style of attack as well. Okay, I have another question here, um, which I'm just going to, um, to shoot out to you. Where do you see OT cybersecurity in the next three years as a major vector of attack on healthcare systems? Um, we have seen this with Sandworm and now with SolarWinds attack. How are we going to need to look at this in a new slash old uh, as a new slash old vector within the healthcare sector. 
Yeah, I can take a stab. I very, you know, OT operational tech, I very much view uh, medical devices in that realm. Uh, uh, yeah, I think, you know, I mentioned it, Share, you know, it's got things you know, jumping over there at GE. Um, there are uh, 10 to 13,000 medical device manufacturers, right? So this is just medical devices, right? This is not talking about any other technologies that Martin and folks will, are going to use uh, to deliver healthcare. Uh, about 10 to 13,000 medical device manufacturers. Getting them to understand uh, that security is a, getting them to fit security within their scope of business is absolutely a, a challenge. And until we somehow resolve that with you know, uh, sufficient market incentives, OT as it pertains to medical devices will, will be a significant attack vector. Whether you're causing harm, like in the Homeland Security, you know, using it against heads of state, which is a possibility, or more probably that you're using it as a vector to disable operations within the healthcare environment. Well, that will be the main style of attack uh, and, until we reach some sort of steady state. Yeah, I agree. I agree completely. Um, you know, I think I shared some statistics earlier on as well, right? Just look at the trend. And I think Seth, you mentioned this as well. It's, it's, it's not like we're getting better at it. Uh, and, and, you know, just, just the environment and the multitude and the different types of OT devices within within uh, you know an HDO is just uh, it's only going to grow. It's only going to grow. So um, I think definitely I agree that not even three years. I think we're already seeing it now. But even in the next couple, three years, four years, you'll see just this getting um, tougher and tougher. And uh, of course, all of us are our hopes are that you know none of that in turn at the end of the day impacts any any person but we've seen the the unintended consequences of the issue in germany for example right you heard about that right where they had to deviate um because the hospital's or functionality was down and they had to deviate uh, the patient somewhere else so i mean it's very unfortunate but it is happening it's happening today it will increase and think about it this way. I think somebody mentioned this in the in the chat box, and I completely agree with them. Um, it's a this OT space. If if you're a bad actor, and and there are a lot of really great ethical hackers that you know have demonstrated this. It is way simpler to to create havoc in that space than to potentially do it in some some other areas as well. So I think the vulnerability aspect is pretty massive. And if you don't have a very mature, holistic setup to combat it, then a lot of bad actors can get a field day and then just do what they need to do. And we're seeing that, unfortunately, in a lot of different places. And, and the biggest challenge is, again, I think Seth mentioned that if you take medical devices is part of this OT space, right? You have a potential for a direct impact to, to patient safety and patient care. And that's, and I think Martin said it, right? Operationally, he wants to make sure that everything is good. That's, that's priority, right? And so this is definitely going to be a, a major problem for everyone to deal with for, for some time to come. Anyone else want yeah, to jump? Oh, I'm sorry. And one other thing to add, there's also, um, there's the devices. There's also a lot of automation and, and filtering of that data, both from controlling the devices and the data coming 
out of it, you know, it's, it's really one connected group that I look at. You have to protect the devices. Then you have on the edge, you have sitting um, analytic boxes, monitoring machines. That's one way of breaking down. You shut down the monitoring, the cyber threat monitoring. You give somebody a lot of time to place an undetected advanced persistent threat inside the system, for example. So you need to protect the device. You need to protect. Then when you have 5G uh, coming in and you have a volume of data, you're going to have more monitoring and more analysis occurring even closer. Um, so you will have things that don't have the security of a data center, even more things proliferating. So it all proliferates from the devices through the monitoring devices there through now you get to transfer that information back into the data center. And that whole path needs to be closely secured as well. There's a lot of path points of entry to break in and not just going directly to some of the devices. Yeah, I think David, to your to your point, right? Being able to manage edge to core to cloud is paramount in healthcare, and I think it's a completely different perspective than what we've looked at in the past. And and trying to do it again, going back to Cher's discussion and Seth's discussion about being holistic in our perspective, we've got to be able to wrap it all together, but also differentiate what's going on in embedded systems with what's going on in traditional IT. And we're starting to see it in pharma too, right? As, as you get more and more edge compute and edge work being done, you, we've got to be able to, to look at it holistically, but partition it effectively. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. One thing I wanted to point out with uh, the moving things left, which I totally agree. Um, the one issue that, or one kind of thing that I always kind of run up against is that customers always talk about uh, wanting things to be faster, smaller, lower power security is like the thing that's lowest down on the list, even though it should be the highest on the list. And I sort of think of Martin kind of with, you know, the, the people who are actually making the decisions in the C-suite might not really understand that, might might just assume, oh, it's, it's secure, it's fine, it's secure. And so when they make their purchasing decisions, they're making them for the wrong reason. And so it really helps when I go to my execs and say, no, we need to, actually move stuff to make it easier for the security, even though it's gonna to add to the cost of the system, um, it's really what the system needs. It's not, a, it's not a nice to have kind of feature. Thank you, G. Um, I got a few more questions here. Um, this one's for Cher. Um, Cher, you've talked about tools. Can you share some light on selection criteria? Uh, you made an interesting point. IT security is different from device security. How can one evaluate monitoring tools? Look, it's a, it's a good question. And again, I'm not putting down the tool. So I, I didn't mean to insinuate that um, that is the route to go. But, um, but look, with, there are, there are uh, many tools that you can leverage uh, out there uh, I don't want it to be a miss. I know I feel like I'm a broken record here, and, and a lot of us have said this, but folks, you got to take a holistic approach to this one. But if you are looking to arm your team with uh, a tool, uh, obviously on the IT side, there are very, you know, there are many fantastic uh, technology and tools that have been around for a long time. But on the um, IOMT, IoT side, what I would say is make sure 
whichever tools you're looking at or you go with, you pilot them for a good amount of time. And by that, I mean, um, you know, at least 90 days and you pilot them in collaboration with your clinical engineering team. Because if you're looking at tools and solutions that are pertinent to your IoT, OT space, there's a lot of claims out there about they have, you know, there's AI capability that can understand behaviors of devices and they can provide certain recommendations that will just, you know, solve your your issue but once you play around with them in collaboration with your clinical engineering team that's i think when you will have some very solid feedback on what's real what's maybe a little bit more on the marketing front and uh, what gaps will you still have at the end of the day which should be part of your purchasing decision so just to just to finish that i would just say make sure as you're looking at it collaborate with with between IT and clinical engineering on that pilot. Great. Thank you so much, Chair. And actually I think uh, I think we're 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 almost out of time in just a few minutes. Uh, the clock was ticking and I lost track. But uh, I wanted to just say thank you everyone so much for joining us today. We have so many more questions. So I hope we get to do something like this again. It's such an important and relevant topic right now. So a big thank you to, to David Hochhauser, Tony Reyna, Cher Baig, Tony Clark, Martin Konish, uh, Seth Carmody, and Ray Deote. And we hope you're all staying safe and healthy. To get in touch uh, with today's panelists, you can feel free to reach out to them directly. All of today's attendees will be receiving an email in the coming days with the contact information of each of our panelists. Uh, so don't be afraid to drop them a line if you have any further questions on any of today's topics. And to stay up to date with Hub Security, I feel this is really rushed. I'm really sorry, guys. This was a really great discussion. But um, to stay up to date, uh, you can follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter. And again, just uh, wanted to give a big, a big thank you to, to all of our panelists today. Uh, thank you for taking the time. Uh, to discuss these topics with us. Pleasure to be here. Yeah. Thanks for having us. And maybe yeah, one day we can continue this in person. <laughs> that would be nice. <laughs> thank you very much. Thank you. Bye. Take care. Be safe. Bye. Bye. Bye.